You're listening to Now You've Seen It, the podcast that endeavors to fill the holes in your essential movie viewing. Here's your host, Paul Gisby. Hello, and welcome to Now You've Seen It, the podcast that endeavors to fill the holes in your essential movie viewing history. I'm Paul Gisby, and I'm your host for today's episode. And today we're talking about the sci-fi horror classic The Thing, released in 1982 and directed by John Carpenter. Very happy to say that I'm joined on today's show by a regular panellist, Cass, from the Good Idea podcast. Hi, Cass. Hi. How's things? Good, how about you? I'm very good. I'm very good, thank you. And um, for those of you who don't know how the show works, we also are joined by a guest, and the guest has chosen a movie from our list of classic movies that he has never seen before, and that's what we're going to discuss. So I'm very happy to welcome today David Rosen, who's a music composer and podcaster from Las Vegas, Nevada. He's composed music for films, TV, and he has his own albums out of his own instrumental music. He also hosts the Piecing It Together podcast. He hosts the Bird Road podcast and produces a couple of others. So a very big NYSI welcome to you, David. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Oh, this is great. This is good to have you here. Okay, let's start off. David, big movie fan? Big, big movie fan. It's my favorite thing to do is watching movies, especially going to the theater to watch movies, talking about movies. I love movies. Right. Okay. And you have a particular connection to this movie because um, I don't, a lot of people don't know that John Carpenter, uh, in, in addition to directing, he also tends to score a lot of his own movies. He's a composer and he writes his own music. And you, you're particularly keen on his music, aren't you? Absolutely. It's weird that he didn't score this one, but but uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that more later. But mm. but yeah, his, his music, though, what he has done for many of his other films and then also stuff that he's just released as albums is hugely influential for the kind of music that I make. It's one of my biggest influences uh, when it comes to the kind of music that I've spent God, like 15 years now composing uh, for films and putting out albums of instrumental music and stuff like that and very much in line with the kind of thing that John Carpenter does. Right. Well, I'd like to come back to that later actually and, and just ex explore a little bit more about what it is about his music and yours that, that, that coincide. But given, sure. that you, but given that you're a big John Carpenter fan... Uh, from the music angle in particular how come you've never seen the thing <laughs> that's a very good question um i so here's the thing i have this this thing about me where there are a lot of movies i might have seen when i was younger but i just i have such a bad memory of seeing movies when i was younger and the thing is one of those movies that always felt like i had seen but then a few years ago, I was actually at a, a live John Carpenter concert here in Las Vegas, and during the concert, he's playing, you know, songs from the movies, and they'd have like uh, scenes from the movies playing behind him. And I'm watching it, I'm seeing these scenes from the thing, and I'm like, "Have I never seen the thing?" Mm. You know, <laughs> it's like I was like, "I really need to see this movie." And then another thing about me is I, I almost entirely watch movies at the theater i i have a real hard time uh making time for movies at home uh so uh, at least one or two times a week i'm at the theater but 
I maybe watch 10 movies a year at home. Like I just don't seem to be able to make time uninterrupted time, especially at home to watch movies. So to fill in gaps for older movies can be a little bit tough for me unless there's like a re-release happening in the theater or something like that. Uh, So it's just one of those things where it's been on like my list of things I want to do and I just can't seem to make time for it to finally get around to watching the thing for the first time. But I finally did it. Right. Well, we're we're very glad that we've been able to give you the opportunity to do that then. And uh, yeah, looking looking forward to hearing what you're going to say. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be getting into talking about the, the thing with David and Cass. Warning, do not listen while hungry. Hi, my name is Stephanie Barajas, host of All Rice, No Beans, a podcast all about restaurants and the people behind some of your favorite spots to eat, where we talk about how they started, all the ups and downs, and my favorite part, the food and drinks. Ooh, and let's not forget about the desserts. So subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, follow me on all social media because I have the pictures of all the food. And if you want to be on my podcast and you're a restaurant owner or in the business, email me at allricenobeanspodcast at gmail.com. And remember, you were warned. Don't listen while hungry. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, and we're back. And today we're talking about The Thing with David and Cass, our regular panelist. And as usual, before we get into the actual discussion, we're going to play one of our now famous spoof trailers to introduce the movie. At the bottom of the world, past the ice wall, a neighborly visit from the Norwegians ends and starts a tragedy, as well as a deadly game of werewolf. An amorphous alien stalks Snake Plissken, the Quaker Oats guy with diabetes. There's something about Mary's dad, Hunter's Captain Devane, and L.A. Law's Leland McKenzie. Who is the thing? Who will be burnt next? Why does the research outpost have so much dynamite and flamethrowers? And why didn't they just dig up Steve Rogers while they were at it? From John Carpenter, the director of movies like Halloween, Starman, and Big Trouble in Little China, comes the claustrophobic horror classic, The Thing. Okay, that was that was good. All right. Um, let's talk about the movie then. Now, when it came out in 82, um, it didn't do that well with the critics. Um, and it got some quite extreme reviews. People said things like uh, instant junk and wretched excess. But then later on, um, it went to video, DVD and then TV. And it started to build up quite a following. And then now these days, it, it really has quite a strong cult following in a scene of one of as one of uh, Carpenter's strongest movies and in fact in 2008 Empire magazine included it in its top 500 movies of all time and described it as a peerless masterpiece of relentless suspense retina wrecking visual excess and outright nihilistic terror so David where are you on the spectrum instant junk or peerless masterpiece uh, definitely towards the peerless masterpiece end of the spectrum, I'd mm-hmm. say. You enjoyed it? Very much so, yeah. It, 
it's uh, it, it definitely lived up to what I expected. Um, and I think as far as like, you know, it coming out to those, you know, really negative reviews and all that. And of course, not great box office either. Um, I, I don't think these kind of movies ever really do that well with critics or or box office when they first get released. They always seem to be the kind of thing that pick up steam later on. Mm. Mm. So when you when you go to a movie, I mean, what kind of things do you look for in a movie? What what do you hope for? I, I a little bit of everything. I, I'm 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 a, I'm a big like I don't know. I like dark comedies. I like I like dramas. I, I like uh, I, I like really a lot of every every genre. I don't have a, a specific uh, kind that I'm looking for per se. Uh, so it really comes down to, I, I follow a lot of directors, a lot of actors and, you know, there, there's certain names that I'm looking for. And then also, uh, critics whose opinions I trust for things that are coming soon to, to keep an eye out for, uh, but yeah, no, no specific kind of movie. Right. But any particular genres? I mean, is the, the sci-fi horror one of your big genres or are you very broad and you're you know, broad church in your, your tastes? Yeah, not not particularly. Uh, I, I'm actually not a big horror fan, even though like with my own work, I tend to to work with horror a lot when it comes to doing my composing. Uh, but I do like creatures, though, and I like uh, I like some good practical effects. So mm. if I hear if like there's a big difference for me personally between, you know, just horror movie of the month versus horror movie with practical effects and mm. if i know if i know i'm going to go in and see some really cool creature design that is definitely going to draw me in more than just any old horror movie okay what well, tell us a bit more then about why what why this movie worked for you what what was it that really really resonated with you well definitely number one is those practical effects i mean some of the creature work is just so just beautifully insane <laughs> just totally just totally uh totally crazy and totally inventive and uh i mean that that really is the number one thing now it also is a, a masterpiece when it comes to tension and when it comes to uh atmosphere and of course the score uh, there, there's a lot going for the movie but for me the number one thing that that i take away from it is some of the coolest uh creature design that's really been put in film yeah i mean there's a lot there's a lot mm -hmm. said and, and written about that i mean kaz i know you, you you're a big fan of it as well aren't you this movie uh yeah i actually really love this movie and i am a huge fan of sci-fi and horror and uh the practical effects are great the suspension is great uh, Kurt Russell looking amazing. Um, <laughs> the giant hat he gets to wear. Uh, everything about it's really good. I love the score. Um, yeah. But yeah, the effects are great. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't know if uh, if you know, but um, Rob Bottin, who did the, uh, uh, he probably should say Bottin, who did the effects. Uh, he was only twenty two when he um, mm -hmm. when he was on this this movie, and actually um, he ended up in hospital. Uh, because of exhaustion, uh, working on it so much. So, but yeah, he 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 certainly certainly put a lot into it. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna admit that this conversation is gonna gonna be an interesting one because I really didn't like it. I hadn't seen it mm. either, and uh, and it really didn't it didn't work for me as much. So, I was really wanting to ask you guys persuade me otherwise. I mean, why should I have loved it? Um, I mean, I've got a lot of, of questions which I kept coming up as I, as, I, as I went along and it made me question it. But um, 
Why should I love it? Because I like I like sci-fi, um, <clears throat> and I, and I, and I'm not a big horror fan, but I'll go with it if the story is, is is done well. Is it just the effects, or is there more that I should be should be looking at? Well, I, I have a question for you to to follow that question up. I'm going to answer with a question. Yep. Um, th- this movie came out in 1982. Yeah, are there horror and or sci-fi movies around that early 80s time period that you do like probably not horror but certainly a lot of sci-fi i mean i loved it i suppose maybe alien could you classify okay. that as horror mm-hmm. I sure thought, yeah I, I thought, alien kind of blends that that, yeah. that genre line. in fact alien was early i think alien was 79 i think 79 yeah, yeah. yeah because the reason the reason why i asked that is because i do think that there's a certain feel to to horror and sci-fi of that particular era that early 80s as we're starting to get into you know more advanced effects and mm. and the certain kind of acting style where it's like if it doesn't work for you it's just it's not going to work for the whole movie you know and like i think a lot of characters tend to act in kind of unrealistic ways sometimes in these mm. kind of movies and uh you know, there there tends to be long stretches of not a lot necessarily happening in in movies like this, uh, specifically from this era. And so, I don't know. I think that that is one reason why you know even one that's considered such a classic like this might not work for somebody. Mm. Cass, you could say something. Oh no, I was going to ask the same question. Like, like if you, what is it specifically that you didn't like? Okay. Was yeah. it like a character thing or? Yeah. So let's get into it. I mean, I, I think I think for me, the whole thing seemed initially when it started, I didn't know anything about it either. I thought, okay, good premise. I thought, great idea to cite it in an Antarctic base because, you know, they cut off. I mean, they, they threw in the extra stuff about the, uh, was there a storm coming or there was some problem with the communications, mm-hmm. wasn't there? So they couldn't connect. So I thought that, that's good. And actually, I really liked the opening. I thought the opening was really clever with the Norwegians chasing the um, the dog. Mm-hmm. I thought that was great. I think what put me off was when you got into the, the the American base, the guys were just so improbable. I mean, it looked like it was a bar that they'd got trapped in, not some sort of research mm-hmm. station, because all they ever seemed mm-hmm. to do was sit around playing pool, drinking, you know, um, being being really mean to each other because no one seemed to like anybody in the place, um, and there didn't seem to be that much real sort of scientific work going on. So I th- sort of thought that was a bit improbable. Mm. Um, they all seem very ill-disciplined, and for that kind of scientific station, you know, it's usually either military or or very academic. So that sort of jarred with me a bit. You know, there was the guy. Um, who was in charge? I can't remember what the character's name was now, but he was wandering around with his his Western style gun and his holster. Yeah, <laughs> which uh, you know. So that, I suppose that put me off. Um, I, I sort of it, doubted the credibility of the setup. Yeah, and I that all. That, oh, sorry, you go first. <laughs> uh, I, I was just going to say that that goes back to the question I was asking because I do feel like there are a lot of movies from this era where. You know, the characters are a little silly and, you know, I think that the idea was to kind of draw you in and uh, make you relate maybe a little bit. Maybe people related a little bit to characters like this uh, more than if they were just like scientists or, or people who in a realistic way are working on on uh, the station. And it, 
again, it's just it's like a it's a kind of a feeling that it, it's it's completely opposite of of real feeling, but maybe they were trying something cinematically to try to like draw people in. Mm. Um, I was gonna say I always took it to be that um, they didn't tell us I don't think how long they'd been there, but that they had been there for a while. They had a routine. They knew what they were supposed to do, so they were bored, bored of each other, going a bit stir crazy already, mm-hmm. and there were only a couple scientists and then the other people were workers at the station. Like there was the helicopter pilot and the chef and uh, like an engineer. So there was a bunch of different backgrounds of people along with the scientists that were doing Mm. the research and that the research, I mean, it's Antarctica, like how much could be going on? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, I, one of my favorite movies, one of my top 10 movies is dark star. Mm -hmm. And that was Carpenter. That was the one mm-hmm. that, that really it didn't it didn't really break him through in terms of financial success, but it certainly brought him to the attention of a lot of people, and that that really worked for me. Very similar premise, actually. I'm mean, interesting that you, you you described in the way you did Cass about them having been there for a long time, because that's why for me Dark Star works so well. Have you seen it, both of you? No. I actually, I don't think I've ever seen Dark Star. Well, I would say, please, please, please go find it. It's actually, it's quite difficult to find these days, but do. It was, it was one of his early ones. And uh, it's basically some guys on a spaceship and they're wandering around deep space, blowing up rogue planets. But they've been out for so long that they don't even know if Earth still exists and whether they should be doing it. Mm. But they're there, so they get on with it. The thing that I really liked about it is they are really, really bored. And so that and they've started the discipline has started to slip a lot. Also, the, the, the ship is is old. So unlike a lot of sci fi movies where and this is actually something that the thing did well, the kit is all sparklingly new. It's all a bit beat up. And that's mm-hmm. one thing I liked about the, the thing was the computers looked as though they'd been used a lot, which I used to work yeah. on. I used to work on chemical plants. And that's what computers look like when you use them in environments like that. So that was good. But the thing was, with Dark Star, maybe this is the difference. They seem to do a better job with the characterization. So you had clear ideas of what the characters like and how they interacted. It was a smaller cast. And it was a comedy. So maybe that mm. that, that worked as well. But um, sure. that was that was really good, but very similar. So, um, But uh, the, the thing is also, uh, what you're saying, David, about the um, movies of the time... Actually, this thing about uh, not a lot of stuff happening and characterization not great, that was that was a, a criticism aimed at Alien as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I just I just watched Alien, uh, not for the first time, but the first time in at least probably 20 years. And yeah, I, I felt it was very similar in that kind of a feel. Mm-hmm. OK. All right. So um, best scene. What would you say were the best scenes that you, you really liked? I would have to go. Uh, God, there, there's a lot. I mean, obviously, it's going to be one of those those practical effects scenes for me. I'd probably have to go with with the whole, you know, with the dog trying to get out of that room with the, you know, the dogs being mutated. Mm. Um, that's quite that early on. Just, that's quite early on. With yeah, you, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that's just so so damn cool. So so crazy. And plus, I, I I'm a sucker for uh, for a movie with a, a good a good dog actor in it. And huh. <laughs> that dog, that dog uh, really expresses some good fear, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cass, have you got one? Um, I 
I, I too like the dog scene, but I also like the the scene in the hallway where they're accusing each other and they they're just looking back and forth. I think that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene where they're testing the blood is really good. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. the scene where uh, McCready's uh, got the torch to everybody and the, they think that he is the thing. And then the guy has a heart attack and then we get another great special effects scene. Mm. Well, I'll come yeah. to that. I'll come to that bit in a minute, actually, because there's an interesting fact about that. The um, yeah, the blood test one, because the other thing I should say about me is uh, I, I, I was I was trained as a biochemist. So, um, of course, when he starts talking about the blood serum thing, the, the scientists think it's, and I thought, that's impossible. That couldn't possibly happen. <laughs> but, I, but I jumped on that guy because, I mean, come on, suspend disbelief. Um, and actually, as the scene, when it began, I thought, well, this is stupid anyway, even, even putting aside the science. But actually, I'll give you something. That, that one really did start to get me. And I thought, actually, this is quite good. This is, this is this, the way it developed. I thought they built the tension in that quite yeah, well. Yeah, the suspense, the build-up was really good. Mm. Absolutely. And I read um, something that said that um, if you know what the sign is, you can tell who the, um, the the thing is going to be because what they did was, you know this, this concept of the catch light when you see someone has a photograph taken and they end up with a little white dot in each eye, which is where the light sure. is bounced mm-hmm. off. Well, yeah. apparently, I haven't gone back and checked it, but apparently, the way they they edited the film, all of the characters have this catch light except for the one who I can't remember who it is at that point who who gets found. But except for him, he doesn't have the catch light because he's the monster. Mm. Interesting. So I need That's to cool. go to go back and uh, and check that one. So what about the characterization then? Did you think it was there was any, or were they all basically the same guy? I don't know about all the same guy. I. I will say I was looking at uh, at a list of the characters, and I will say these are some great character names: uh, yes, McCre- yes. McCready, Blair, Nalls, Palmer, yeah. Childs. Those are some great names. One of them's called Win- Windows. Is one of them called Windows? Yeah. <laughs> yes, Windows. Yeah. yeah, great, great names for this kind of movie. Um, but no, I mean Kurt Russell, of course, is the standout as far as uh, you know th- these characters are concerned. Um, it's just like such a classic role for him. Mm, mm. Yeah. And so who would you say was was the best then, the best actor in the whole thing? I got to go with Kurt Russell. Yeah, Kurt Russell for sure. Okay. I think it was the dog. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Aside from, I mean, that's a given. <laughs> well, because another scene, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm, starting, I'm starting to sound as though I actually did like it. Because another scene was really good, it was really early on, where before anything had happened, there's one scene where the dog just, there's, there's, there's a shot of a corridor. And uh-huh. you don't see anything, and then the dog just pokes his head around the corner. Remember that scene? Oh yeah, absolutely. That was fantastic. Good. That was good. Oh, I thought yeah. I thought that dog could act. That was that yeah. was impressive. Give that dog an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> best Oscar, yeah, best dog in a movie. All right, talk to us about the music a bit, then, David. In this one, I know no carpenter didn't. Um, well, he didn't compose it although he did actually throw in one or two bits that that he put together but but does the music in this work for you oh absolutely i mean ennio morricone one of the one of the all-time greats and uh it's a fantastic score um it 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 really helps set the feeling and and that whole 
you know, snow covered region and everything. It just kind of, it just, it helps paint this picture of, of the isolation that they're in there. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's a really great score. Is that, is that something that, cause although it wasn't a carpenter one, would you, would you find yourself maybe using something from the thing score in, in music you've written? Um, possibly, uh, I definitely, with, with my area of expertise, I tend to lean towards the more synth heavy stuff, which is why Carpenter is such a big influence for me. Mm. Um, I do, tr- I do try to, uh, combine a little bit of more traditional film score style with, um, uh, with the synth stuff. Mm. Uh, but, but definitely his, his synth, uh, you know, things are, are where a lot of my influence comes from. But that being said, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I love Morricone's work. Mm. But because it, it didn't, it didn't use music a lot to build tension, did it? I mean, it didn't sort of, the, the, you know, the screaming strings in the background or anything like that. It was right. It was no, more it's th- more about it's more about the setting. It's more yeah. about more about mm-hmm. setting you up for for that that the isolated setting. But then once you get into you know actually moving forward within the plot, definitely it's more about just the uh, more about the performances and the tension. Yeah, yeah. I suppose I, I was thinking I would probably describe the music as brooding. Would you think that was a fair? Mm-hmm. Sure. Because I was watching the credits actually uh, back the other day, and and the, the music was playing over that, and I thought actually this is, this is pretty good. It's sort of dark and rolling, and not yeah, it's, it's not hysterical, was it? No, absolutely not. Which, and I I feel like that might be more of a more modern horror score kind of a thing. I don't know. I think that this is definitely of a different time. Uh, I think if you make a movie like The Thing now, it probably would be wall-to-wall music going big and huge, you know? Mm. Uh, and I, I like this better, though. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the music, Cass? Yeah, I agree. I do really like the music. Actually, I have the score, and I have listened to it a lot. Really? Um, ah. Yeah, it was re-released on vinyl uh, maybe last year or the year before. Right. Um, And it's it was uh, remastered and really well done. And I agree that the music now would be completely different. It would just telegraph everything in a mm. bad way. <laughs> yeah. I was listening to somebody, some, um, somebody talking the other day on the radio and he was saying uh, it was Armando Iannucci. If you know him, he did, he did uh, the, a lot of the, um, the writing for Veep and produced and directed okay. that. Okay. Um, and he also did, um, the Death of Stalin, which was, uh, mm-hmm. and he was saying um, what he looks for in music is he, he doesn't like music that basically just reproduces what's going on in the scene. He quite likes it when you get that that sort of contrast that, that sure. poses, mm-hmm. you, poses you questions about it. So the interesting thing is that when you, when you score a, a, a movie or a TV program, I'm assuming mm. you see the program, you see, you, get, you get the footage, you get the, the video to watch. Yes. Because Morricone didn't with this. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I know there are times where where that has happened for me as well, where, uh, you know, the, the deal that I work out with, with the filmmaker is uh, that they just want me to make some music and they're just going to put it into the movie after the fact. Mm. And that does happen from time to time. It's not ideal, um, you know, although at the same time, it takes away any need for me to deal with timing necessarily. And then it's up to the filmmaker to cut around it, you mm. know, which mm. which definitely changes the uh, the workflow. And there are, you know, there are pros and cons to both ways. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, well, he didn't. Um, he just he flew out to um, Rome and met Morricone, and they talked it over. Morricone did uh, did some some uh, music for it, sent it to Carpenter, who then started to use it. But then, because some of it didn't work quite in the way that he wanted, um, and he must have obviously been a bit nervous about about it, offending Morricone, he just off his own bat worked with Alan Howarth, who he'd worked with a lot before, and they wrote some some very simple synth bits to go over some of the scenes but never told Morricone sure. about it and yeah. uh and I think Morricone wasn't wasn't entirely best pleased about that but uh, mm. but it worked out in the end all right I've got a couple of questions about the um uh, to do with the with the plot that I just wanted to run past you the bit where um Blair is building the ship so I didn't quite get that because they discovered this thing, and it seemed to be quite well um, finished. And yet, the thing had only just arrived. So, what were we saying that Blair was always infected from before, or he's incredibly fast, or what? What was that about? Do you think? Um, quite honestly, I don't have a good answer for that. Uh, I I think it's just one of those things. You know, eh, it's a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they, maybe they didn't think that through 100%. I don't know. I, I could be wrong, though. I don't know, Cass, do you have a better answer than that? Um, I always thought that it, it was uh, the thing getting desperate. And so it tried to quickly build something that looked like a ship, but that was probably inoperable, that it looked like it on the outside. Because, I mean, mm. he was only in that cabin for a few hours. I mean, yeah. we don't really know exactly how long, but that's what it seemed like. So that was my interpretation. <laughs> mm. I guess just trying to make it make sense. Yeah, yeah. So I did. I didn't get that one. I thought, well, there's, there's something there. But then that's the kind of things that you you know you, you could seed into a movie, and then later on, uh, someone says, "Ah, oh, well, the hidden story behind it is this, that, and the other." So maybe it'll it'll be explained uh, in a different way. Okay, what did you think of the ending? I I thought the ending was cool. Um, I mean, I. You know, again, a lot of the enjoyment for me of this movie comes from the, uh, the, the first of all, of course, the practical effects and all that, the creature work and all that stuff. Uh, also, I think the, the suspense of, you know, everything happening in the middle is just, you know, really masterful, you know. But as far as, like, the actual plot and, like, what happens in the ending and all that, it just kind of is what it is, and I wouldn't really say it's like the strongest point. Uh, but it's you know it's it's fine where it goes, where the ending is. I I don't necessarily like the big showdown with the the, the thing at the ends. Um, I think that that's one of the weaker points, but otherwise I think it's fine. Mm. What do you think, Cass? Yeah, I agree that the big showdown part is kind of a letdown, mm. but I do like the ambiguous end when it's the two of them just sitting there next to the burned out building, and they don't know if one of them or both of them is infected. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. that's good. And I think I like over the years that uh, John Carpenter has gone back and forth and said multiple different endings for it, never giving a definitive answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was made to make a different ending. I think for the, what was it was a, a movie version or a TV version, and he was made to make a, a less ambiguous version, um, which he didn't like. Um, I Actually, I thought the... The beginning and the ending in terms of, of, of storytelling were probably the best. I like the ending very much. I like the fact that they were sitting there across from each other and you couldn't be quite sure if one or the other had been infected. 
mm-hmm. or both or both so uh yeah i i uh, I, I like that Okay, let's 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 just finish off this section. But one one last question I'd like to ask you because we've talked a lot about the effects. So, what was your favorite effect of the whole thing? I probably would have to go with the uh, what are they called, defibrillators or whatever, going oh, the, into yeah. the chest. Defibrillator, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that's just that, that's actually the scene that I saw during the. Uh, during the John Carpenter concert here where I was like, holy shit, I have to see the, the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't believe I never saw this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cass, same one for um, you. Yeah. I really love that scene. And then when the um, head pulls itself off and grows spider legs and tries to mm. run out of the room. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fun fact about the defibrillator thing. Cause of course he presses on the guy's chest and then his chest collapses and then mm-hmm. uh, the thing is inside the guy, and of course it bites his arms off. To to shoot that effect, they employed a double amputee, and gave oh. him and gave him false arms made out of wax, so that wow. he could then have his arms bitten off and then have them spewing blood. So, novel way of uh, of getting into that uh, that whole kind of thing. So. That's oh, wild. yeah, it's wild. Okay, um, let's leave that section there. We're going to take another short break, and then when we come back, uh, we have the the hosts' fun section segment where we'll be uh, doing a bit of a trivia quiz. So let's take a break. Was a quiet place inspired by signs that comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is the Hurricane Heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast, Piecing It Together. Every week we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it. Whether it's the story, the character development, tone, or even use of music. Every movie was influenced by something that came before and we want to figure out what. Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com. You can also follow us on social media at piecingpod. Piecing It Together is a part of the All Points West Podcast Network. Okay, welcome back. You're listening to Now You've Seen It and we are talking about The Thing. And we've just been going over what we thought about the movie and how we liked it. Um, Let's have a bit of fun. I've got a a, a five questions uh, trivia quiz. So... Um, no points particularly. Um, it's not a competition, but just see how we go. Okay, question one: True or false? John Carpenter appears in the movie. David. False. Cass. I'll go opposite and say true. Okay. You have to say where then, if you think it's true. Oh, I. Uh, I'm not sure. I, maybe on the other base. Isn't there some bodies there? Is he a dead body? Uh, pretty good, actually. The answer is true. Um, no, he's not one of the dead bodies. If you remember, um, I think it's about 36 minutes into the movie, uh, they watch a video that's been shot by the Norwegians mm. that shows some of yeah. the things that they were doing. Mm-hmm. Well, I looked, and I it's so blurry you can't tell, but apparently one of the guys there, one of the Norwegians in the, in the footage is Carpenter, and that's where he made his, his cameo. Which uh, nice. interesting, like a lot of lot of directors, he liked to do. So yeah, he is. He's in the movie, right? Another true or false number two. True or false? There are no female characters in the movie. Cass, you start. Uh, I'm going to say true. David, I'm going to also go with true. It's false. Um, 
there's sort of three situations really um one of them is you might which is not really a character but you remember at one point uh one of the guys is watching stuff on tv and there's a woman appears in one of the shows that's on there so you could say that was sort of count but not really there's another one which is a i'm glad they they, they cut it out but also apparently they had a scene where they had a blow-up doll of a woman <laughs> but they cut that but actually the reason that it's false is because adrienne barbeau who was uh carpenter's wife uh, one of his wives for a while and also had roles in the fog and escape from new york plays the voice of the chess wizard chess yeah that mccready loses the game if you remember and um pours a glass of whiskey into the machine and blows it up i thought you were going to tell us that the dog was female yeah that's what i was thinking yeah <laughs> actually my eyesight's not that good but you know <laughs> okay uh right well we'll move on from the thing but this the next three questions are all really to do with carpenter himself has john carpenter ever won an oscar Oof. i want to say no I don't think he has either. I'm going to go with no. Yeah. Well, technically, he has. Uh, when he attended um, University of Southern California in 1970, uh, some of his classmates and he made a movie called The Resurrection of Bronco Billy. And Carpenter was responsible for editing, composing and co-writing. And it went on to win an Academy Award for Best Short Subject. Hmm. Wow. But the thing was, um, the company... The kids themselves didn't actually get the recognition that the the teacher went and collected the award and apparently brought, uh. brought it in and let them see it and then took it away. But, <laughs> and he didn't have anything to do with the making of it. He was just the teacher. But uh, so, yeah, he did. He won. He won it for that. But not for nothing else, um, which is a shame, actually, because and there's certain uh, there are certain genres of movie that really seem to struggle at the Oscars. Do you not think? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Horror and sci fi are so underrepresented. Mm hmm. Mm. Yep, yep. So maybe that'll all change because today we are recording it when the nineteen to the twenty twenty Oscars are being announced. So who knows? Yep. Right. What is John Carpenter's favorite movie genre? Ooh. Hmm. Um, it's got to be something like totally like unexpected, like musicals yeah. or something like that. Romantic <laughs> comedies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> John Carpenter makes a romantic comedy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's westerns. Ah, uh, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's apparently it's often. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm no movie critic, so I wouldn't know. But apparently, uh, several critics have said that you can see that in a lot of his movies: um, Assault on Precinct Thirteen, Escape from New York. Yeah. Um, and apparently, even they live. People have said they've got very western type plots. I don't know mm -hmm. those movies. Do you know? Do you know those movies? Sure. Well, yeah. also you could you could say Tarantino's The Hateful Eight is incredibly uh, influenced by the thing itself. So, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, you know, you got that, you know, going around in a circle there. Yeah. Well, actually, that's that's absolutely true. And apparently, Tarantino has even acknowledged that and and called that out and said that, uh, that he's a big fan of Carpenter and and yeah, The Hateful Eight. Yeah. Um, there's a scene, isn't there? I think which pretty much reproduces what happens in the base. Uh, Pretty much. Also, it uses some unused musical cues that uh, Morricone had had written for the thing. Oh, that's right. Yes, exactly. Mm. And I'd read that too. Yeah. Um, but actually, no, he was a big fan and he always wanted to make a movie. And in fact, he ended up uh, being able to write a script for a movie for John Wayne, who was his, his idol. 
and mm. they were going to make this movie called uh, Blood River. And uh, uh, Carpenter wanted Elvis to play. It was about a, a, an older guy and a younger guy. And Carpenter wanted Elvis to play the uh, the role uh, alongside John Wayne. But uh, John Wayne wasn't impressed and he wanted Ron Howard to be in it. But <laughs> but unfortunately, um, Wayne's health was really ailing at that time. He was failing. And um, so they never got to make it. So uh, so that was that. It never it never saw the light of day. But yeah, he's a big he's a big um, Western fan. Mm. Right. Last question. Which blockbuster movie that starred Tom Cruise was offered to Carpenter, but he turned it down? Blockbuster movie. Oh, boy, that's... Hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of something that, like, goes with, with Carpenter's, like, aesthetic, but I, I can't even think of anything <laughs> that like Tom Cruise is in. War of the Worlds? Uh, no. Did I have Tom Cruise in it? I think it did. Right. Yeah, it it did. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, Mission Impossible. That's a good guess then. Yeah. No, it wasn't that. No, it wasn't Mission Impossible. Um, I think one of the biggest movies that really burst Tom Cruise onto the scene. Top Gun. Top Gun. Yeah. yeah. Wow. He was offered Top Gun, and he turned it down because he thought the idea behind the movie was stupid. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> he is not wrong. Mm. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much for taking part in that. There are no prizes, and I don't guarantee that any of those answers are faultlessly correct, but I've got them from <laughs> the internet, which we know never tells lies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, we get to the part of the show now where we need to rate the movie. So the premise is, if you were to, if you had the chance to go and see this movie, The Thing, in the theatre, and you could pay anywhere between zero and $10 how much would you be willing to pay, David? Um, well, it, it's kind of an unfair question for me because I go to the movies all the time anyway, and I if I've got to pay the money, i got to pay the money. But I would put this at a 9 or a 10, let's say. Let, let's just give it the full 10, just because I would love to get a chance to see this in the theater sometime soon, hopefully for an anniversary thing. Or I, It was just recently announced they're doing a remake, which... I don't think is a good idea, but maybe in the week leading up to it or something, they'll they'll show it in the theater. So I'm hoping for that to happen. Okay, Cass. Uh, I'm also going to go with ten. Whoa. I would I would pay full price to see this. I love this movie. I would love to see it in the theater. Or, <laughs> um, yeah, ten dollars. Okay. <laughs> well, you've done a you've done a better job, actually, guys. I was I was going for. It was it was struggling to get to two actually for me. But, oh my gosh! But you've done a better job, and maybe I would give it a give it. A, so I'm going to go four. I'll give it. I'll give it four dollars, which gives a as a, a, a an average of eight dollars. So it gets an eight dollar score. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Not bad. So okay. Well, thank you very much both for uh, joining us today to talk about the thing. Hopefully, we've persuaded some people to give it a go as well if they haven't seen it or to go back to it if they've seen it before and want to remind themselves of it. Uh, I just have a few things to say, uh, the usual stuff. Um, if you've enjoyed listening to us talking about this, then please subscribe, rate and review the usual um, process. Thank you very much. Uh, if you want to get in touch, you can email us at oraclepodcasts at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com 
forward stroke now you've seen it, all one word, you can, and we would very much appreciate it if you did, support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward stroke oracle, oracle podcasts. And you can check out this and other wonderful podcasts at oraclepodcasts.com. Our theme music is performed by Eric Hunt. Thank you, Eric. And a big thank you to our broadcasting partners at Age of Radio and Galactic Netcasts. And you can find more about them at ageofradio.org and gncasts.com. And with that, it's uh, goodbye from me. And thank you and goodbye to David Rosen and Cass, our panellist. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now You've Seen It is a production of Oracle Media Productions in association with Age of Radio and Galactic Netcasts. For more great podcasts, visit oraclepodcasts.com, ageofradio.org, and gncasts.com.